You've been listening to Boldly Going Nowhere. This podcast has been brought to you by Aaron Burr. Apparently, Jordan is starting a fan club because that's all he talks about. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. It's the Ten Dual Commandments. It's the Ten Dual Commandments. Number one, the challenge demands satisfaction. If they apologize, no need for further action. Number two, if they don't, grab a friend, that's your second. Your lieutenant, when there's reckoning to be reckoned. Number three, have your seconds meet face to face. Negotiate a or negotiate a time and place. This is commonplace, especially between recruits. Most disputes die and no one shoots. Number four, if they don't reach a peace, that's all right. Time to get some pistols and the doctor on site. You pay him in advance, you treat him with civility. You have him turn around so he can have deniability. Five, four before the sun is in the sky. Pick a place to die where it's high and dry. Number six, leave a note for your next to kin. Tell him where you've been. Pray that hella heaven lets you in. Seven, confess your sins. Ready for the moment of adrenaline. When you finally face your opponent. Number eight, Last chance to negotiate. Send in your second, see if they can set the record straight. Number nine, look them in the eye, ain't no higher. Summon all the courage you require. Then count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Number ten, paces fire. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Boldly Going Nowhere. I am your one true host, Jordan Ashcraft. Uh, today we're continuing talking about Aaron Burr because apparently I have nothing better to do. Uh, if you want to email the podcast, you can email us at bgnpod at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram at Jordan Ashcraft. Um, yeah, that's it. Uh, do I have any recommendations? Not really. I've been watching The Sopranos. Sopranos is really good. I've never watched it before. Uh, that's about it. All right, let's go. Oh, uh, I think, I hope. There's one more Aaron Burr episode after this. So if you have any suggestions about what else I should do a podcast about, please email me. Because I will certainly take it under consideration. The most famous duel in U.S. history had its beginnings many, many years before 1804. While they might have met as teenagers, though it's unlikely, Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton definitely met as young men during the Revolutionary War, during the brief time they both served on Washington's staff, though we know little of their interaction during that time. They would run in with each other many times over the years, though the mythology that has built up around their rivalry has been rather overblown, if you ask me. You might have noticed that for long stretches of this never-ending podcast series about Aaron Burr, I rarely mention Hamilton, and that is because they don't actually interact with each other all that much, and when they do, it is often not in a direct manner. They were on opposite sides of the General Lee affair, both during and after it, but not much came of it. Hamilton wrote and constructed so much of the Constitution that we know today, and Burr opposed that document, though only mildly so, and from the sidelines, as he did not attend the Philadelphia Convention. They became lawyers around the same time, both being able to skip some of the apprenticeship years due to Burr convincing the New York Supreme Court to grant a waiver to veterans. They were both some of the best lawyers of the generation, taking on any number of cases and establishing customs and precedents that would last for decades. They worked together on cases, they opposed each other on cases. For a while before Theodosia died, they were friends of a sort. The 1880s were the closest they ever got to an actual friendship. They even helped fund a school, a school that still exists to this very day. In many ways, they were similar. Veterans, 
talented in a broad renaissance man kind of way, well-educated, fashionable, Hamilton more than Burr. They both married rather remarkable women and seemed to love those women in a genuine fashion, regardless of Hamilton's affair. They undeniably loved their children and took great pains to see them educated and well-groomed to the world they were growing up in. Both men had a habit of adopting or looking after kids who were not their own. Both men were atheists, though Hamilton seems to have found religion during his later years. They both, broadly speaking, opposed slavery, though Burr definitely owned slaves throughout his life, and recent scholarship suggests Hamilton might have owned slaves well past his youth, which was the commonly accepted time he last owned and sold them. They were both city folk and great lovers of their adopted New York City. They were also both often in debt. As we will see, Hamilton died in the red, leaving his family with insufficient assets to take care of themselves in his absence. Friends and allies were forced to come to the Hamilton family's aid, and his wife, Eliza, had to borrow money through the remainder of her years to stay afloat. One of the primary reasons Hamilton hesitated to accept a duel was that it would not only be endangering his family, but that of his creditors as well. Uh, this is a more modern take, but both men also had lifelong mental illness struggles that plagued them. Hamilton suffered from depression, and it's reasonable to think that Burr had PTSD from the Revolutionary War. They were both ambitious, though Hamilton much more famously so. Play saddles Burr with the idea that he kind of just hung out, waiting for his shot. But he took and pursued shots all of his life. He was one of the best lawyers of his time. He was in the state legislature and U.S. Senate. And he became the third vice president of the country. These things just don't happen. He planned the Manhattan Company and its secret bank in front of everybody, and nobody suspected a thing. Jefferson tasked him with winning New York for the Republicans, and he went to war with as much energy and verve as any man, essentially out-hustling Hamilton himself. Burr was a man of ambition as much as anybody. Both men ran in the same political and social circles, and they knew plenty of personal information about each other. Burr served as Maria Reynolds' divorce lawyer, and in all likelihood knew about her affair with Hamilton for some years before the news broke into the public. Hamilton, in turn, seemed to have a good gauge on Burr's debt, several times remarking with accuracy how much he owed and to who he owed. Even their differences mirrored each other in rather striking ways. Both were orphans from a young age, though Burr had plenty of brothers and uncles to care for him. Burr was born in upper-class American royalty, or the next best thing. Both his father and grandfather were famous men of their times. Hamilton, on the other hand, was born in the Caribbean, didn't know his father, and had to immigrate to America. Both thought of themselves as self-made men, though only Hamilton truly was. Where Hamilton was a fiery ball of energy, Burr was cool and composed. Hamilton often took offense to things, usually when he should not have, while Burr really only got truly offended by someone the one time he killed Hamilton. Hamilton took to everything he pursued with outsized passion and fire, while Burr sometimes did things more or less because he had to. While a truly talented lawyer, he remarked more than once that he did it primarily because it paid well and because he happened to be good at it, not out of any great love for the law. Hamilton, on the other hand, was obsessed with the law and would often write long essays and letters exploring the philosophical foundations of the law and concepts like justice and how the law ought to be. Burr simply took the law for what it was and defended his clients as need be. Hamilton kept grudges for years. Burr seems to have only ever kept the one. Burr's upper crest birth gave him a kind of quiet, stoic dignity and self-assurance that Hamilton never had. You and I would say that Hamilton suffered mightily from imposter syndrome, well past the time he had accomplished more than any man could ever hope to in one lifetime. And yet, over the years, something festered between the two men. Though from the historical evidence we have, this was a rather one-sided affair most of the time. Hamilton grew to truly despise Burr and fear him in a way that he did not that he did not anybody else he faced off with during his political career. 
Burr seems to have irked him in a way that few other men did, and it's hard to say why exactly. It could be Burr's relative moderation on most political issues. Burr had a habit of flirting with both political parties of, of the time, while never truly committing to either one, something that would have deeply annoyed a true believer like Hamilton. From Hamilton's point of view, Burr needed to pick a side. It almost didn't matter which side so long as he picked one. And we can't forget that Hamilton saw Burr's caper with the Manhattan Company as a direct and deep portrayal. Betrayal. Which, to be fair, it kind of was. Hamilton was played for the fool in that endeavor, and without it, who was to say how long Federalists could have stayed in power, both in New York and on the national level? Without the Manhattan Company and Burr's activities, Jefferson might have never become president. Furthermore, the men found themselves constantly on opposite sides of many of the political arguments of the day. These natural disagreements contributed to the divide between the two men over the years. On Burr's side, I think it's best to say that his feelings towards Hamilton remained much the same over the years. His letters to his daughter make it clear that he knows Hamilton does not like him, but Burr never really lets on about his own feelings. Hamilton had backed his own bitterest political rivals against Burr twice now. He publicly backed Jefferson over Burr for president, and he had all but worked for Republicans in the latest governor's race in New York. I'll bet, theoretically under odd circumstances, depending on how much you should believe, how much you choose to believe the whispers of succession were a real threat. Though I myself doubt greatly that Burr would have gone along with such a rebellion, it's not unreasonable to take Hamilton's concerns about Northern succession seriously. And while it is true that Hamilton claimed Jefferson, quote, is by far not so dangerous a man and he has pretensions to character, unquote, and history even bears that out, I think that Hamilton's personal feelings get in the way there. From Hamilton's political point of view, Burr would have been a much better choice. Backing him makes, practical, makes much more practical sense than it does backing Jefferson, and his dismissals of Burr and his character are probably overblown. Burr was never the amoral rogue that Hamilton thought he was, even though Burr's life is kind of full of shenanigans that would make you think so. Under slightly different circumstances, their lives would have spiraled around each other, occasionally bouncing off each other, and that would be that. If Burr had ever made the choice to, to fully commit to the Federalist Party, they might even have formed a truly formidable and talented political team. But 1804 was a weird time for both men. Hamilton was well-respected still, but not the force he once was. Remember, his Federalist Party ignored his firestorm against Burr that very year. In years past, that never would have happened. Burr was even in, was in an even stranger way. He had no clear way, way forward, no next step. While still vice president, he was a political outcast, truly and completely, and his career choices seemed limited. And finally, that cool demeanor of his had cracked. He was angry, smarting from yet another defeat in the polls, and the mudslinging from the pamphlet wars. But one does not just jump headfirst into guns drawn at first light. There is a process that must be followed, rules and etiquette that are important to know if you want to understand how and why Burr and Hamilton found themselves facing off one morning in July of 1804. Dueling has its roots in the trial by combat practice of the Middle Ages. The aristocracy could, as a way to prove their innocence in certain kinds of crime, fight an opponent to prove, their in to prove that innocence. The idea being that God would not let an innocent lose in combat. That, or they could hire someone to fight for them, a proxy. Many an unlanded knight made a good living traveling the land, selling their sword to those who most needed God's intervention. If you watched Game of Thrones, the fight between the Viper and the Mountain is a good example of a trial by combat. The Viper, and by extension Tyrion, lose because, even though the Mountain is fatally wounded, the Viper died first in the actual combat. 
Over the years, trial by combat grew defunct. Folks started catching on to the fact that the more talented and able fighter won instead of the more innocent. Dueling grew out of this tradition, but instead of God, it was concerned with honor, one of the few things possibly more nebulous and confusing than God and religion. It also went from legally allowed to legally frowned upon, though few folks were ever convicted of dueling. Dueling was legally frowned upon not because people disapproved of it, they didn't really, but because the death toll had grown too high. Henry IV outlawed it because during 20 years of his reign, some 10,000 men were estimated to have died via duel, dueling, and no kingdom could afford to lose so many rich and educated men. Women could technically duel as well. Two women of noble birth once fought over a shared lover after they accidentally showed up at the same time for a secret rendezvous. Both women were quoted as saying that his love, or at least his lovemaking, was well worth dying for. In general, dueling only applied to the cream of society. Peasants and those whose blood did not run blue could emulate it if they chose to, but it was not really dueling. Almost anything could spark off a duel so long as someone's honor was infringed upon. A pair of nobles once fought a duel over whose property could sustain more rabbits. I kid you not. The rules and expectations of dueling differed from country to country, but they largely followed the same set of core rules and a certain etiquette was expected. If one man felt their honor had been breached, they must reach out to the offender for an explanation or an apology. If the matter is not immediately put to bed via that explanation or apology, both men would choose seconds and continue a small round of communication through those seconds. Very early in the process, the seconds become the most important and vital part of the whole affair. They were the conduits for any communication between the two primaries and they took care of all the logistics. If the matter cannot be reconciled during this time period, the seconds meet and establish a place and time for the duel. By the time of Burn Hamilton, pistols were essentially the only viable weapon choice. But in years before, swords were just as acceptable, even preferred. After all, it took actual skill to skewer a man instead of just pointing a gun and pulling a trigger. Or so they say. The men would meet at the time and place with their second and a doctor. The seconds would lay out the rules and the duel would commence. While men often died from duels, either in the field of combat or, painfully, hours or even days later, death was not a requirement. By Burr's time, the bloodthirsty, murderous aspects of duels had calmed down somewhat, though not completely. European gentry especially only needed the draw of blood for both parties let bygones be bygones. Americans appeared to have been a little bit more bloodthirsty, often shooting to kill or lamenting when their shot did not strike a mortal blow. Burr and Hamilton both entered into this matter with the reasonable idea that they would survive it. As crazy as that sounds. Dueling came early to America, the first recorded one occurring only a few years after colonists arrived in the so-called New World. By the early days of the 19th century, American dueling had become wrapped up in not just matters of honor, but of politics. Political animosity fueled duels just as often as honor, though the two had been so wrapped up with each other over the years that sometimes it's hard to tell when one began and the other ended. But what mattered most for Hamilton and Burr, in this specific time and place in their lives and career, was their political futures. The uncertainty of where they could go politically pushed them further and further into a confrontation that must have felt to them at the time, like an inevitability, even though it wasn't. Because, on a practical level, both men probably felt like they had no choice in the matter, even if that is not actually the case. Burr had no political future that he could see, having finally used up all the goodwill from both sides of the political spectrum. But he could, pro if, but if he could properly defend his honor, who's to say what might happen? And Hamilton was a fading power, a man with such a fragile grasp on power that he could not afford to turn down a duel. 
if Hamilton ever wanted to enter politics again, he could not afford to have the shame of turning down a duel on his record. Both men had been involved in duels, Hamilton many more times than Burr, which makes sense when you consider their general temperament. Burr had actually acted as a second when Hamilton and James Monroe almost dueled in the aftermath of Hamilton's affair with Maria Reynolds a few years earlier. Burr was able to diffuse the situation by playing fast and loose with the truth of what both men wanted and said about each other. Remember, the seconds were the only conduit with, with between which the two duelists could uh, communicate. Since he was one of the only ways the two men could communicate with each other, he would twist one man's words in such a way that would please the other. Or he would simply delay delivering letters so that both men would have time to calm down. The process took months, and both men would half-heartedly demand an end to the whole affair via gunshots, but Burr was finally able to gently push both men into more important things and moving on with their lives. So, the direct steps to this duel began thusly. In March of 1804, Hamilton dined with some friends at Judge John Taylor's house. A Dr. Charles Cooper listened with, with much entertainment as Hamilton and others spoke ill of Burr. They were essentially roasting him. As there were no phones back then, he wrote off a quick letter summarizing the fun had by all that night to a friend. Cooper would later claim that he asked another friend to deliver that letter, and that the letter got opened during delivery. The reality of the time leaves us with no firm evidence as to whether Cooper lost track of a letter or let it into the open on purpose. Letters were often delivered on an informal basis and were often opened and read during transit. And by often, I mean basically all the time. Folks regularly wrote in code or cipher as an added security measure against this. Regardless, excerpts from the letter during offering first-hand accounts of Hamilton's insults towards Burr started appearing in newspapers, which prompted other men to respond with their own essays and letters to appear, and yet other newspapers either defending or attacking Hamilton. The most prominent letter writer in this brief firestorm was Philip Schuyler, father-in-law to Hamilton, who made it clear in no uncertain terms that Cooper's original letter was false even though it wasn't. I do not know what Schuyler actually knew when he wrote this letter. He could have been holding the line for Hamilton out of a place of ignorance to what his son-in-law had actually said, or he might have known better but was simply covering for him. This letter specifically annoyed Cooper enough so that he wrote a second public letter in late April directly to Schuyler via a newspaper, repeating what he had already said once more. Cooper claimed that he had held back the worst of what had been said. Quote, for really, sir, I could detail to you a still more despicable opinion which General Hamilton had expressed of Mr. Burr, unquote. This letter appeared in the Albany Register. Burr received a copy of that paper on June 18th. It may not make as much sense to you and me today, but the key words in all of this are Cooper's use of the word despicable, which was a very potent word for the time and had led to literally and has led to literally centuries of speculation because to this very day we don't know what Cooper meant. We only know that it would have been especially potent and powerful for him to use this word. Broadly speaking, the word meant someone or something socially sordid and degraded, corrupted by their actions, and a complete lack of moral character. The use of such a word at the time was, without a doubt, fighting words. It would have been especially harmful to a man like Burr, who, for better or for worse, had a rather sordid reputation. He had, after all, been accused of at least the following, adultery, sodomy, bribery, stealing from clients, prostitution, and sex with slaves. And even if very little of that was true, it had followed him around for decades. On a practical level, it doesn't matter what Cooper had in mind when he said what he said. The fire had been lit. The day after receiving the newspaper, Burr employed his friend William P. Van Ness, who would later serve as his second, to deliver a letter to Hamilton demanding an explanation for that night in March. 
Burr's initial response was to delay and ask for more time to respond with a proper letter in kind. Hamilton probably could have ended the whole affair with a generic apology or a denial that anything more was meant by his use of the word, despicable, but instead, Hamilton chose to be irritated. Hamilton claimed that the charge put forward by, Ver by Burr was far too broad in nature and not one he could properly respond to. He needed more details. Van Ness responded that this was an inadequate response to Burr's initial letter, so Hamilton promised to do better. What he did was get into the weeds of what words even meant more than he already had. He wrote that, quote, "'Tis evident that the phrase still more despicable admits of infinite shades from very light to very dark. How am I to judge the degree intended?" Unquote. Well, bud, you said it, or you said whatever Cooper is implying about, so really, nobody is more in a position, more in a position of authority than yourself. That's my opinion, obviously. He went on, quote, I deem, to, I deem it unadmissible on principle to consent to be interrogated as to the justness of the inferences which may be drawn by others from whatever I may have said of a political opponent in the course of 15 years competition, unquote. Burr responded with a letter demanding a better explanation of what was said that night, specifically in dismissing Hamilton's defense as an argument hiding behind grammar and precise definitions of words they both already knew. If you were alive during Clinton's impeachment, this would all sound very familiar, because Clinton tried to get by with very weird definitions of certain words. Van Ness went so far as to dictate the exact words and phrases Hamilton could send Burr's way to make the whole matter go away. Hamilton refused. Both men had already exchanged words that had set them on a course for a duel. It would have been very unlikely at this point for either man to retreat from, those, from this war of letters. Frankly, as I said above, neither, or I said before, neither man could afford such a hit to their reputations and to their future endeavors. Whether guns were going to be fired remained an open question, but at this point, a meeting somewhere quiet and out of the way between the two men and their seconds was all but assured. Van Ness and Nathaniel Pendleton, Hamilton's second, met many times over the course of weeks, uh, course of the weeks leading up to the duel, and were stymied by first the hardening of Hamilton's position and then Burr's equal stiffening. While this affair of honor had begun with a specific word implying specific words spoken on a specific night, in Burr's heart it had grown to encompass years of disrespect and insults. He expanded the scope of the matter to include any insult Hamilton had ever uttered against Burr, something Hamilton was not capable of giving, because how could you possibly remember everything? And, as a custom of the times, no man would grant. Burr, by the standards of his class and culture, had begun this matter in an ex an expected and improved, approved manner, but by most reasonable metrics of the time, had, he had quickly grown the affair past what could be reasonably expected to be solved by a duel. The problem for Burr, if you want to get technical, because people did not follow the letters of the so-called law of duels ever, really, um, was that Burr had, Burr was trying to call into question basically anything Hamilton had ever said about him, uh, instead of that one specific night, which is duels are meant to resolve a specific issue and not anything bigger than the specific issue. So a lifetime of competition and, and insult is well beyond the scope of any duel. On Wednesday, June 27th, Van Ness delivered a formal duel request to Pendleton. The date was set for July 11th, which allowed Hamilton time to wrap up some court cases he had pending and gave both men plenty of time to get their affairs in order. Both men, it should be noted, were heavily in debt. After Hamilton's death, his assets failed miserably to cover that which he owed, and his friends and allies were forced to take up a subscription lottery to support his widow and children. They even bought her house 
at full market value and sold it to her at a fraction of its real value so that she would always have at least a place to stay. In the lead up to the duel, both men went about their lives as normal. They even attended an event mere days before the duel and sat cl rather close to each other. Witnesses, in retrospect, because nobody knew about the duel, not even their families, claimed that Burr spent most of the night staring at Hamilton in a haunted fashion that they could not explain until after news broke that Hamilton had died, not even a few days later. Burr, as is typical of him, does not leave much for us to sift through in terms of his thoughts on the manor. I would guess that he did not give the duel much thought beyond the fact that it was happening. There were allegations that he spent some time practicing with pistols, which would have been, again, not illegal because there are not rules about this, like laws about this, but it would have been very uh, ungentlemanly like if he had been if he had spent any time practicing uh, shooting targets or something like that. Besides making sure his will is up to date, Burr ordered his daughter, if he did not survive, to burn the bulk of his papers and letters especially the correspondence with any and all of his romantic partners, of which there were more than a few. This was a rather common practice, but also heartbreaking from a historical point of view. Hamilton, to his credit, never gave his wife and kids such an order. Hamilton, besides getting his affairs in order and convincing himself that he was not leaving his family broke if he died, had an added thing to consider. While a younger man, he had gladly partaken in and supported duels. He was involved with many affairs that never got to the gun part, and he was a second for several that did. But after the death of his son in such a manner, only a few years earlier, he had publicly and seemingly personally had a change of heart and took a stand against duels. This position was not uncommon, even though duels would continue for decades as a completely accepted tool of conflict resolution in certain parts of the country, they were in their twilight years. Plenty of prominent men, John Adams and Benjamin Franklin included, had denounced them for years. And as I mentioned earlier, they were technically illegal in many states, and more and more states would uh, make them illegal as the years went by. So. How does a man who, by all accounts, had a real change of heart, as well as a man who needed to still prosecute this affair of honor in such a way that would not hurt his political future, proceed? Well, he would throw away his shot, a known way for men to fulfill both the needs of their beliefs as well as their honor. Hamilton started leaving word on paper that he would throw away a shot all over the place. Letters, correspondence, in his will. Um, he published a defense of his duel, like in case he died, when which he mentioned that he would uh, throw away his shot. He spoke of it constantly to those in the know. Again, this uh, this weird, like, dual position may not make all that much sense to you or me, but it was a completely reasonable resolution back then. Men truly did not always die in duels and were not expected to. Hamilton had a reasonable expectation that the matter would end as soon as they exchanged fire and everybody could walk away still breathing, regardless of if he did indeed waste his shot something we will explore shortly. I think it is safe to say that his intention was not to kill Burr, but rather to simply survive the ordeal and satisfy his honor. While we don't really know what Burr thought about the duel in the days leading up to it, there is some evidence about his thoughts on killing Hamilton directly. The day after the duel, he was quoted to have said he would have preferred to shoot Hamilton in the heart if he could have, and years later, he confessed to a friend in England that he was sure of his ability to kill Hamilton. He only rarely expressed regret about the duel. Though, he, to be fair, he did express regret. But he never uh, expressed any guilt about the matter. As always with Burr, he's a bit of a cipher when it comes to his true inner thoughts about something. It's entirely possible that he did feel some amount of guilt over the years afterwards. Or that he, at the very least, regretted it wholeheartedly. We just don't know. The duel was set for dawn on July 11th, 1804 at Weehawken, New Jersey. Dueling was in fact illegal in New Jersey, but the law there was much more lenient 
about such things in New than in New York. Both parties traveled by boat, Burr arriving first, and him and, his, him and Van Ness began to tidy up the area, sweeping up any leaves or underbrush that might have um, gotten anyone's way. Both men were ready at 7 a.m. The seconds drew lots to decide who could choose where to stand first, and Hamilton won, choosing to take the northern side of the ledge. This is noticeable because it would have given him a view of the city in the morning sunlight, marring his aim to some extent. But if he was throwing away his shot, as he claimed, it did not matter much, if you think about it. The weapons were smooth bore pistols, which is notable because this type of weapon was uh, noticeably less accurate than pistols which had a rifled barrel. I'm not going to go into the specifics of that. You can Google it if you want. Uh, the pistols are currently on display at the headquarters of J.P. Morgan, uh, the descendant of Burr's Manhattan Company. And under, you know, non-COVID times, I believe you can just walk in and see them if you ever wanted to. Though I'm not sure about that. As part of the process, the seconds loaded the guns, handed them off, and both men took their assigned position. Pendleton recited the rules one last time and asked both men if they were ready. Hamilton called for a pause to the affair so he could put on his glasses, something Burr, something that Burr would later claim was clear evidence of Hamilton's, Hamilton's intent to shoot with accuracy. Though if you want to take the other side of that, you could simply say that Hamilton needed to see where he was shooting so he could not hit uh, Burr. He could intentionally miss his shot or throw away his shot. Pendleton again asked if they were ready. Both men agreed and he pronounced the, and he announced present which gave both men permission to fire. Both men immediately lifted their pistols and fired. Hamilton striking a branch above and behind Burr, Burr striking Hamilton in his midsection, breaking several ribs, splitting his liver, and embedding the ball in his vertebrae. Hamilton explained, I am a dead man, and fell to the ground. Which is dramatic. And everyone claimed that's what he said, so I have no choice but to believe it, but it sounds kind of made up. Burr attempted to go to him, but Van Ness gently escorted him away to their boat, where he returned to New York City and to his home. Later that day, he received a young cousin, Justin, from Connecticut, about two hours after shooting Hamilton, but refrained from mentioning the fact, as it would not have been in line with a good host to bring up such a matter. matter. After breakfast and a good visit, this cousin was walking down the street and heard word from folks that Burr had shot Hamilton, to which he simply could not believe, having just dined with the man 30 minutes beforehand. Hamilton would not die till the next day, after which the entire country, but especially the North and New York City in particular, went into deep, deep mourning. In some ways, this was the first national tragedy the country had decided to mourn as a whole. George Washington had died years earlier, but he had managed to die peacefully and at home, successfully retired from public life at like he'd always wanted. His death was not a tragedy. Hamilton was relatively young. Uh, we don't know his exact age, but we know he was not 50. He was either 47 or 49. And he was still a man in his prime, even back then. <clears throat> New Yorkers wore black armbands for a month to express their sorrow after losing the city's first great citizen. There was and is a controversy over just how the duel played out. Who shot first? Did Hamilton throw away his shot? Van Ness would claim for the rest of his days that Hamilton shot first, while Pendleton contended that Burr had shot first. Decades later, in his 70s, Burr returned to the spot with a friend and walked him through what he remembered happening. He claimed to remember hearing Hamilton's shot whistle by and strike the limb of a tree. Which, the timing may be off, but that is what happened. According to Pendleton, who returned to the spot the day after the duel, he recovered both Hamilton's ball and the limb that it was struck. 
The limb was, by his account, some 12 feet off the ground and at least 4 feet to Burr's left side. This badly missed shot would support the idea that Hamilton shot first and threw away his shot, but it also supports Pendleton's claim that Burr shot first and Hamilton's trigger was only pulled by a spasming hand. If Burr shot first, then there is not much to say about the matter, matter from the point of view of the time and place he lived his life. By all customs and expectations, he had every right and expectation to shoot, and as luck would have it, his aim was simply faster and better. But if indeed Hamilton noticeably shot first and clearly missed on purpose, that is more complicated. Again, to a degree, Burr was in his rights to shoot to kill, if he indeed did so. Both men throwing their shot away was a clear signal that they wanted the duel to be done. That honor had been met simply by facing off with guns, and Burr would have known that, even though it would have been technically okay for him to shoot, he would not have had to aim for something fatal, but could have missed or attempted to shoot a leg or an arm, something people did. But again, this is assuming he aimed to kill. In Burr's defense, Van Ness always claimed that Burr did not know about Hamilton's plan to miss, and that makes sense. Few people knew of the duel. Besides Burr, Hamilton, Van Ness, and Pendleton, it's probably no more than four or five more people knew about it, and their families definitely did not. So, it's entirely possible that within the very, very small circle of men who knew about it, none of them, either on purpose or by a game of telephone, got word to Burr of what Hamilton had planned. Had Burr, no had Burr known he was in no real danger, his temper might have cooled somewhat and a different outcome might have been reached. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Whatever Hamilton's intentions were, he had definitely laid the groundwork for Burr's destruction in as thorough a manner, manner as possible in the eventuality that Hamilton died. His public statement and correspondence that came out after the, his death repeated the mantra of his plan to throw away his shot. Pendleton and Rufus King, Rufus King, a close ally and senior member of the Federalist Party, and also I believe he was the last Federalist to run for president. He lost to Jefferson, I believe. Maybe? I don't know. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Pendleton and Rufus King both backed these claims on paper by swearing that he had told them many times of his plan to throw away a shot. Hamilton repeated it many times on his deathbed, as if the matter needed any more evidence. He also made it clear that he had no ill will towards Burr. The truth of that matter, we simply do not know. I would be, you know, at least very annoyed at the man who killed me. What we do know is that the Vice President of the United States of America, did you forget that fact? Had shot and killed one of the most well-known founding fathers, and people were, you know, upset. Rumors of Burr practicing with his pistols the weeks before the duel surfaced. Rumors that he ambushed Hamilton before the duel the morning of surfaced. Rumors that he had broken the rules during the duel surfaced. Rumors that he was proud of what he did and had felt no remorse surfaced. One newspaper called Burr a base assassin. Burr had been in a politically tough spot before the duel. Politically, he was a dead man, so to speak, after it. In the immediate days after the duel and Hamilton's death, Burr, regardless of anything else he might have thought or felt, seemed annoyed. Hamilton's oldest enemies came out of the woodwork to praise him in death with what they would never have said in life. Burr wrote to his son-in-law that, Quote, the malignant Federalists or Tories and the embittered Clintonians unite in endeavoring to execute public sympathy in his, Hamilton, favor and indignation against his antagonist. Thousands of absurd falsehoods are circulated with industry, unquote. In the end, threats of mob violence and outlandish rumors did not much concern Burr. He had dealt with both of those to various degrees in years past. 
What was concerning was the city coroner convening a jury to look into Hamilton's death. Knowing that he might not be able to pu- post public bail due to... Po- due, um, hold on. Knowing that he might not be able to post bail due to a possible murder charge or because he could not raise the funds, Burr made plans to leave the state while things settled down. About two weeks after the duel, he had fled New York with a slave named Peter and was in Philadelphia living with a friend. In early August, the jury indicted Burr for murder and issued warrants for both his, for him, and both Van Ness and Pendleton. In the long run, these charges were not going to stick. Firstly, New York did not have jurisdiction as a duel had taken place in another state. And secondly, as I've said before, men simply were not found guilty of duels in this time. Um, further evidence for this is that the governor of New York... Oh, wait. No, the governor... Uh, yeah, no. The governor of New York was already asking for the charges to be dropped. Regardless, Burr did not, did not want to face any jail time, and he fled further south, where the general attitude about duels was much more friendly, and the ire directed at him about killing Hamilton was much less. Important for next episode, before he left the north, he had a meeting with Anthony Mary, the British ambassador to the States. They allegedly discussed very vague and premature plans about the West, but more on that next time. He spent time traveling the region. He spent time traveling uh, across the regions of the South, meeting important people, and spending precious time with his daughter and grandson. In October, New Jersey leveled murder charges against him as well. The efforts in both these states were not exactly vigorous, and both charges kind of just sat there for a while. I want to say that the Jersey charges sat for years, actually, but I'm not sure about that. New York pretty quickly dropped the murder charges and replaced them with lesser ones, and New Jersey would eventually do the same before both states dropped the charges altogether. But Burr was forced back to return to the Capitol because Congress was back in session and he was still the president, or he was still the vice president, and therefore the president of the Senate. And he was needed to oversee an impeachment case for a sitting Supreme Court judge. So, mere months after killing Hamilton, with legal charges standing against him, still standing against him, the vice president had to go back to work. It must have been the weirdest of things for many of the men who worked in Congress that November when Burr walked in and began to oversee the Senate like he had every other session. Men and newspapers alike proclaimed that a murderer was running the Senate. For Burr, though, this was probably the most enjoyable time he spent as vice president. Jefferson and his administration sought to curry favor with Burr in the lead-up to the impeachment trial. They gave Burr jo- or they gave Burr's allies jobs. They had dinner with him. They treated him as a useful part of the administration for the first and only time. In the end, it would not pay out for them. The context for the impeachment trial of one Samuel Chase is rather simple. In the aftermath of Marbury versus Madison, Jefferson grew increasingly concerned with the idea that the judicial branch had created the monumentally powerful right of judicial review, which allowed them to decide if something the other two branches did was constitutional or not. His concern only magnified when you remember that many of these judges were Federalists, which makes sense because the country had only ever had Federalist presidents, and who else would you expect Washington and Adams to appoint? Jefferson, in rather dramatic fashion, viewed these men as a potential fifth column that would constantly undermine his goals for the country. In retrospect, this fear was largely unfounded, in part because Jefferson in many ways ended up being a milder president than many feared he would. Regardless, Jefferson and the Republicans strived to remove as many Federalist judges as they could. They had already achieved this to an extent by repealing the Judiciary Judiciary Act of 1801. This is a good reminder that concerns about judges and the judiciary are not new. They are as old as the Republic itself. A signer of the Declaration of Independence, Chase had been appointed to the Supreme Court in 1796 by President Washington and was in many ways perfectly qualified for his duties on the Supreme Court. 
His resume was robust. However, he had irritated the wrong men when, under the Alien and Sedition Acts, he had refused to release a local printer even after a grand jury had decided not to press charges. He's quoted somewhere as basically saying that he that the jury was wrong and that, in his opinion, that man needed to stay in jail, which is a pretty wild thing to do. He had also, in other places and times, stepped beyond the expected role of a judge and, has, and had essentially acted as a prosecutor against certain men. Though really, none of this was, was a surprise. He had been an ardent and open Federalist for years, even actively campaigning for Adams in 1804, despite being on the Supreme Court. Something you would never see happen today. Like if you, if a, if a modern, if one of the current sitting judges on the Supreme Court started to actively campaign for a presidential candidate, we're in a bad place. <laughs> In late 1803, the House of Representatives served him with eight articles of impeachment. While the specifics were different in each article, the common theme was that Chase had a strong political bias and had treated folks of the wrong political party in an unfair manner, not befitting that of a judge who was supposed to be as objective as possible. Chase and his defenders accused the House of attacking him strictly for political reasons, which was pretty clearly true. They never would have gone after a Republican-leaning judge who acted the way Chase did, but also, at the same time, none of that justifies Chase's um, actions, either. The House eventually voted to impeach him by a vote of 73 to 32, thus sending the matter up to the Senate, which, if you remember from about a year ago, when Trump got impeached, or, you know, a week ago, when he got impeached, would act as a trial for the whole affair. Burr grew animated by the specter of a trial, the first and last of its kind in U.S. history, and quickly set to preparing the Senate. He cleaned the place up, like, physically, literally, he, like, dusted, he uh, repaired broken stuff that needed to be fixed, chairs, stuff like that. He replaced furniture that had fallen in disrepair and set about sprucing the place up in any way he thought it needed. He, um, what did he do? He replaced benches with seats and, like, he got rid of some of the more informal aspects of the Senate so that it looked more like a, uh, like a trial, like a courthouse. During the trial, which began in early February of 1805, he interjected more than a few times, asking pertinent and insightful questions. He demanded clarification when it was needed, reined in the defendant as was needed, which turned out to be often since Chase was a, such a loudmouth. Burr's goal from the beginning of the trial was to make it as impartial as possible, even though the whole matter was mired in partisan politics from the beginning, and by all accounts, he did just that. Chase was ultimately acquitted on the first day of March. When the Senate was unable to reach the two-thirds majority needed to impeach him. Again, sound familiar? We have not impeached the Supreme Court justice since, but the reper repercussions from this trial are still with us. Chase himself promised to be less openly political, and by all accounts he was. Supreme Court judges have remained rather quiet in their politics ever since, even today. Burr's impartial rule over the trial allowed senators the room to breathe away from partisan politics and really consider the consequences of a president and political party impeaching a judge, not for his actions or the quality of his work, at least not primarily, but rather for his politics. And eventually, I think they chose wisely, even if Chase sounds very much like an ass to me. Chase surviving this trial further strengthened the independence of the judiciary, both rhetorically, but most importantly, on a practical level. Another vice president from that era, Adams or Clinton or Jefferson himself, very well might not have run such a tight, fair ship that they had been given the chance. While Burr's political independence often made his life harder than it needed to be, in this case it paid off for the rest of us literally for centuries. Men from both sides praised Burr for his even-handedness, though it should be noted that Jefferson himself was upset by both the outcome and how Burr had handled himself. 
Jefferson's anger is probably the best indication that regardless of anything else, Burr probably did right by his job as an impartial judge on the matter. Burr chose the next day, March 2nd, to make his official farewell to the Senate. He apparently gave such a magnificent speech that it made more than a few men cry. The Senate, he said, is a sanctuary, a citadel of law, of order, and of liberty. And it is here, it is here in this exalted refuge, here, if anywhere, will resistance be made to the storms of political frenzy and the silent arts of corruption. And if the Constitution be destined ever to perish by the sacrilegious hands of the demagogue or the usurper, which, God avert, its expiring agonies will be witnessed on this floor. Uh, those words sound a little bit different, I must say, in the days after the uh, storming of the Capitol building. A week Well, wait, two weeks ago. Huh. I must say, I have not read this script since before that happened. Well, that's weird. Anyways, with those last words of wisdom, Burr quietly walked out of the Senate and went home. Never returned to the Senate chamber, nor, as far as I can tell, the capital city itself. Next time, Adventures in the West. Burr is possibly a traitor. Again, we'll see. Um, yeah, I think one more episode, everyone, and we'll be done with Aaron Burr. Finally. Though I have enjoyed myself. All right, bye, everybody. I strike him right between his ribs. I walk towards him, but I am ushered away. They row him back across the Hudson. Tells me you'd better hide They say Angelica and Eliza Were both at his side when he died Death doesn't discriminate Between the sinners and the saints It takes and it takes and it takes History obliterates And every picture it paints It paints me and all my mistakes When Alexander aimed at the sky He may have been the first one to die But I'm the one who paid for it I survived but I paid for it Now I'm the villain in your history Too young and blind to see. I should have known. I should have known the world was wide enough for both Hamilton and me. The world was wide enough for both Hamilton and me.